please, to Psalm 110. We are resuming our series in the Psalms this morning. We sort of took a break after Abigail was born for uh, a couple of months to walk through the Beatitudes. We are resuming the series this morning entitled The Songs of Zion. And kind of up in the, in the calendar that I, I had written a, a calendar, kind of what, which Psalms I wanted to preach on months and months ago, not really knowing that this one would land as kind of the, uh, resuming the series, Psalm 110 is probably the hardest psalm to preach on. I'm, I'm, I'm preparing you, okay? So if the sermon's not that good, I feel a little bit excused. However, what I mean is that there's, there is so much packed in here. I, I thought uh, this could be four sermons, but, but I am going to try to give you the bird's eye view. Perhaps one day we'll come back and do the other three. But it's a dense psalm. We might go a little bit over time today, but I will be conscious of the roast you have in the oven, probably. So turn, please, to Psalm 110 which is on page 602, 602 of your pew Bibles. Psalm 110, a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments, From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord is sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is the word of the Lord, and again we say, thanks be to God. This psalm might be the most important one in the whole book. It is, in my, as best I can tell, I call it Jesus' favorite psalm because it gets quoted the most, not just in the Gospels, but in the New Testament. This is the passage in the Old Testament that gets quoted the most often of any passage, not the whole thing, but different chunks of it, in the New Testament. And so that's why I've called the sermon the King's Hymn. This is apparently God's, they're all God's songs, but this one is apparently really special. The psalm begins with the superscription, as all of them do, well, as most of them do, rather. Uh, But this time time it's actually very, very important. I'll talk to you, I'll I'll tell you why in, in, in due course. But the fact that this is a psalm of David is really going to matter for this one, Okay. Uh, and so David begins. We're going to do a, a quick kind of overview of the psalm, and then we're going to kind of unpack some parts of it. So David begins in verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, which, no, that's not good enough. We have to be more specific. What I want you to notice, the Lord, the first Lord is in all caps, right? The second Lord is not, okay? That is because the first Lord is the divine name given to Moses. We pronounce it Yahweh, best we can figure. The second one is Adonai. It can mean Lord, it can mean Master, it can mean Sir, you know, just a a formal address, okay? So Yahweh says to my Adonai, Yahweh says to my Lord would be the way to translate it, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So what's going on here? Who is the author? I've given you the superscription. Who's the author? David. All right. All together like we believe it. Who's the author? David, well done, okay. And David says that Yahweh is having a conversation with his 
Lord, Master, Sir. Okay? Yahweh said to my Master, my Lord. And Yahweh told David's Lord something. He said, sit here at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Then verse 2, Yahweh sends forth from Zion your, that is Adonai's, mighty scepter. Okay? Yahweh sends forth the mighty scepter of David's Lord. Rule in the midst of your enemies, he says. David sings that Yahweh sends forth a mighty scepter, a scepter belonging to his Adonai, from Zion. In other words, Yahweh, uh, Jehovah is another one that gets used sometimes. It's a Latin translation of the name. Uh, Yahweh slash Jehovah is going to send out the rod of Adonai's strength and rulership, that's what a scepter means, from Zion. With the result, look at the text, that Adonai will rule over his enemies. Okay? Adonai's strength is going to be exercised, sent out from Zion, and he will rule in the midst of his enemies. Now, the seat of his authority is in the heavenly places. How do I know that? Because he's talking to Yahweh. Okay? Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. That's in the heavenlies. But the extension of his rule is in Zion. That's on earth. Okay? So what we have here so far is a promise from Yahweh to David's Lord. David's Adonai. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Here's the scepter. Here's the authority. Here's the rule from heaven to Zion, and from Zion to the world. Then verse 3, how will Adonai exercise his power? Answer, oh, through his people. In holy garments. In holy garments, the Hebrew here is tricky. That's why if you have like the King James, you might have in the beauty of holiness. So, so in, in the glory of holiness, clothed in holiness and all its beauty, however we kind of can get our hands around that, they will wear holiness like their clothing. The people who have given themselves to this Lord, to this Adonai. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Everyone knows what that means, right? Yeah, me either. And as it turns out, if you've, and some of you have got like a study Bible, and if you follow your footnote down to the bottom, it says, the meaning of this Hebrew phrase is uncertain. It's like, well, good, because the meaning of this English phrase is uncertain. It's difficult to translate. But basically, where there's some agreement is that it means that your strength will be refreshed. Okay? It's a promise of strength. So what do we know so far? Yahweh has made promises to David's Lord. He's told him he's going to rule until all his enemies are put down under your feet. He's going to rule from heaven through Zion, and this power is going to be exercised through his people who are arrayed before him like an army in garments of holiness. And he will not grow tired or weary, and neither will they. They will be refreshed. Then we come to a really strange verse, verse 4. The Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. So he's still talking to Adonai. You, Adonai, are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. We're going to unpack that more. All you need to know for now is we've learned more about this Adonai, about his background, even his, his rank, you might say, what he does. The psalm closes with a picture of what this Adonai will do when verse 1, all your enemies under your feet, is fulfilled. The Lord is at your right hand. That's Adonai is, is at Yahweh's right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. You should hear echoes of Psalm 2 here. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. Oh. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. You hear this? All nations are encompassed here. 
He will drink from the brook by the way. That's, that's language of refreshment after the battle. If you've ever taken a long drink after a hard day of, of like working outside, it's so cold and it's so good. Imagine a long drink of cold water after an ugly, bloody battle. You're covered in the dust and blood of the fight and you take that long, cold drink of water and then you lift up your head, <sighs> totally refreshed. Okay? This is a picture of Adonai's, of the Lord's coming victory. So there are at least three things in the psalm I want us to see. There is first a promise of victory. That's verses one through three. Next, there's a person for victory. This victory is going to be won by a specific kind of person. And then three, there's a picture of victory, those concluding verses that give us the picture of what this victory at rest looks like. So first, a promise of victory. As I said, most often quoted passage in the Old Testament, not the whole thing, but parts of it in various places. One of them, of course, uh, where, where this occurs is in the Gospels. Three of the four Gospel accounts, Jesus quotes Psalm 110, verse 1, with the same goal in mind every time. It is perhaps unsurprisingly, the quotation happens in the same context in all three of the, uh, of the Gospels where it's mentioned. So we're going to look at Matthew's recounting of this moment very briefly. Matthew chapter 22, verses 41, uh, starting in verse 41, going to verse 46. The Pharisees were gathered together. Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? What a delightfully, uh, uh, delightfully kind of ironic moment. The Christ is the one talking to them. And it's, it's like a pop quiz. What do you guys think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then, so if that's true, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him, the, the Christ, the Messiah, Lord, saying, the Lord said to my, David's Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. It's so good, all right? So he drops this bomb and shuts them up, right? You think you know a lot about the Christ, right? Is he David's son? Now you, now you the reader, already know that the Messiah is David's son because Matthew told you in Matthew chapter one with the genealogy, right? So Jesus is not saying that the Messiah is not David's son, but he is saying, let's at least start with, isn't it weird that in Psalm 110, David calls him Lord. Jesus, during his earthly ministry, is always teaching more and more about who he is and what he's going to accomplish. He gives this question, whose son is the Messiah, right? What this tells us for the people of Jesus' day is that nobody questioned that this psalm was about the Messiah. Nope, nobody raises that question. Jesus just says, Psalm 110, Messiah? And they, yes, okay? If the Messiah is the son of David, why does he call him my Lord, my Adonai? One of the great privileges of fatherhood is naming. Abigail means joy of my father. I could think of no better name. Many of you know that when kids are growing up, they might get any number of nicknames from dad, both compassionate and horrible. Everything from plays on their names to titles like princess or sport. What you don't have, you don't have today, and you certainly didn't have in the ancient world, is that fathers and grandfathers go around addressing their sons and grandsons as sir. But that's what happens here. David is talking about his great, 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 so on, grandson, and he calls him Lord. 
Why does Jesus bring this up? Because he's, he's helping his hearers comprehend that the Messiah is a son of David, but not just a son of David. He's also David's Lord. David's Master. The Lord of heaven and earth. Jesus is preaching the incarnation. Okay? God has become man. But all of this is to sort of bury the lead. What does verse 1 say? What's the promise? Let's read it again. The, Yahweh says to my Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. We should never forget that God the Father has promised God the Son to put all his enemies under his feet. Okay? Now, under his feet is an ancient expression that just means completely and totally defeated. Right? Think of Genesis 3. The curse that falls on the serpent is that one day his head is going to be under the foot of the Messiah. Total defeat. Same kind of principle here. But wh when did he make the promise? Maybe that question catches you as a bit of a curveball. When did this take place? When did God the Father say to the Son, sit at my right hand? When did he send out his son's rule into the world from the central hub of Zion? When were his people arrayed before him, dressed in holiness, refreshed and ready to serve him? Anybody want to guess? I wonder. I wonder if you've got a guess lined up. What does that sound like in the Bible? I'll give you a hint. 40 days after the resurrection. Yeah, just before the, oh, just after the ascension. Thank you, that's correct. Just after the ascension, we have the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, okay? Where, where, where am I getting that from? Go to Acts uh, chapter two, this, uh, 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 our next place where this verse gets quoted. So Peter's preaching, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, son of David, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh see corruption. That's a different psalm. This Jesus God raised up of that were witnesses being therefore exalted, can you keep going, at the right hand of God. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This, this is amazing. What Peter is saying, all of the sermon up until this point has been to help you understand this one thing. That verses one through three of Psalm 110 is a depiction of the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. He enters into the heavenly courtroom. God the Father says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So, but, but Psalm 110 was years and years before that. Centuries, but yeah, yeah. Think of it like, like a movie preview, right? You have, you have Adonai talking to Yahweh. Yahweh's saying, sit here until I make your enemies your, your footstool. Right? Sit at my right hand, the place of power and authority, until I make your enemies your footstool. And, and maybe there, there wasn't a full grasp of all that that would mean. But it, they didn't know they were watching the movie preview of the resurrection and the ascension. And then the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Clothing his people with holy garments. Right? So, 
Jesus dies, he rises again, he ascends up into heaven, still wrapped in flesh, still bearing the scars, he enters the heavenly throne room, and God the Father says, sit here at my right hand until I've crushed all of your enemies. What happens next? Exactly what Jesus said would happen. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, into the nations. You see, the people of this crucified, resurrected, ascended, reigning Messiah are gathered together in Zion, in Jerusalem, at Pentecost, wearing the garments of holiness given to them by the blood of the Lord Jesus. They receive the magnificent gift of the Holy Spirit on the day of his power, that's Psalm 110 language. And they are ready to spread his rule and reign throughout the world. Starting in Zion, in the very midst of their enemies, and fighting on until Yahweh puts all the son's enemies under his feet. Now, that brings us to verse 4, doesn't it? The Lord has sworn. Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay. <sighs> this trips us up because who on earth is Melchizedek? I'm so glad you asked. I'm going to try to make it as brief as I possibly can. Because wow. For David's readers, this would not have tripped them up. They would have said, wait, this guy a priest, right? So a, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Wait, he doesn't, he hasn't sounded like a, so far we've got a king on our hands, not a priest. This is a king we're talking about, right? Reigning, uh, right hand, power, authority. This is a king. But you said he's a priest. Everything we've been reading so far has all been about kingship. This king has a throne at the right hand of the Almighty. He has a scepter for heaven's sake. He has a people appearing before him. But he's not a king, he's a priest. Okay. Now that maybe sounds less weird to us because in our day we think of nothing of having multiple vocations, multiple jobs at once, working two or three jobs, so to speak. But in the Old Testament, there were three offices that pointed to the Messiah. Okay. Uh, who, can, who can name them for me? I bet, I bet some of our kids can, if you, if you know from your catechism classes. What are, the, what are the three offices that Jesus fulfills? Hmm? You can just call them out. Office of a prophet, yeah. And, and a priest and a king. Very good, very good. Well done. Prophet, priest, and king. And never in the Old Testament context could a person who does one of those jobs do the other. Prophets were usually out in the wilderness until they came into town to rebuke and trash the king. <laughs> Kings were in the palace administering justice. Priests were in the temple offering sacrifices. You don't have anyone doing the job of the other. In fact, when King Saul tries to be a priest and offers some unauthorized sacrifices, it costs him, wait a minute, the entire kingdom. When King Uzziah tries to be a priest, he gets intercepted by the real priests and struck with leprosy before he can make it out of the temple. So this was a big deal. And the language of the psalm is provoking us to ask, how can this guy be a king and also a priest? And the answer is basically, you've seen it before, Melchizedek. So let's talk briefly about Melchizedek. We meet Melchizedek in Genesis 14, after Abraham has been involved in these sort of skirmishes and battles with regional kings around the areas of Sodom and Gomorrah. And to summarize a whole lot, those, those battles have come to an end. And uh, if you can go to that Genesis text, please. Yeah. So after his return from the defeat of Oh, whoa, Ch Chedor La Laomer. I practiced that this morning and still it tripped me up. And the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shiva, that is the king's valley. 
And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, professor of heaven and earth, possessor, excuse me, of heaven and earth. You can hear some great commission language there, can't you? And blessed be God Most High, who's delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. He tithed to him. Now, if it feels like this guy just came out of nowhere, it's because he did. Okay? And that's all we get, by the way. That's it. We're done with Melchizedek. Now, who is he? Short answer. We have no idea. Okay? There's been an enormous amount of speculation about this guy, who he could be. The Bible actually tells us very little about who he was. This is one of those times where I will again fall on the wise advice of John Calvin, who said, where God speaks clearly, we should speak clearly and often. Where God has not spoken, we should put our hand over our mouths. So there are doctrines of our faith that are so clearly spelled out in various places in the scriptures, you have to blind yourself in order not to see them. And there are mysteries in the scriptures where we're not given as much information as we might like, but we still confess the mysteries are true. Melchizedek is one of those mysteries. His name literally means king of righteousness. Okay? But the Genesis text, you might remember, says that he was king of Salem. Can you go back up one? So that last line there, second to last line, and Melchizedek, that's and king of righteousness, was, uh, king of Salem. So Melchizedek is his name, king of Salem is his title. Uh, and Sorry, I lost my spot. That probably means, probably, probably, that he was king of Jerusalem before it became Jerusalem. King of Salem, Jerusalem, city of, city of Salem, city of peace is what it means, as in shalom. Okay? So this king's name is king of righteousness, and his title is king of peace. Huh. This king of righteousness and peace comes to Abraham after the battle. We're told he's a priest. He prepares a table for Abraham in the presence of his enemies where they eat bread and wine together. Come on. And Abraham gives him a tithe, which is a sign of gratitude and honor. So who was this king priest? Some think it was Jesus Christ himself, a pre-incarnate appearance. Certainly possible. I'm, I'm, I'm warm to that. Some think it was a faithful, God-fearing man in the land of Canaan meant to point to Christ and before David's reign was the king of Salem, uh, the, the uh, king of the city of Jerusalem. Also possible. The point is we know very little about him, but the point is what we're supposed to learn from him. What we learn is that there is apparently someone who can be a king and a priest at the same time, Right? He's not from the tribe of Levi, but he's a priest. We don't, know, he's, he's, he's not, we don't know anything about him, yet he's a king. And when David is singing about the coming Messiah, he says, you're a king and a priest, just like that guy Melchizedek, <laughs> what, whatever, whatever else we know about him. And all of this is echoed in a text from the prophet Zechariah. Now, I bet you weren't expecting that because Zechariah is one of the minor prophets. And if you're going to turn to Zechariah to read this text in a moment, just look for the spot in your Bible where the gold gilding on the page edges is still really bright uh, because we don't go to the minor prophets that often. But Zechariah chapter 6, wait till you hear this. It's so cool. Say to him, so say to, uh, 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 say, say the one who needs to hear the word of the Lord, thus says Yahweh of hosts, Yahweh of the armies, behold, the man whose name is the branch, which is a messianic title, 
For he shall branch out from his place and shall build the temple of Yahweh. It is he who shall build the temple of Yahweh and shall bear royal honor, kingship, shall sit and rule on his throne, and there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of Salem, shalom, peace, shall be between them both. The king is going to be a priest. Pictured here is two, but as we get closer to the revelation, we realize it's one. Why does that matter? Well, the verse gets quoted again in Hebrews 7, which frankly, we don't have time, okay? Someday I will preach through Hebrews and we'll unpack it all then. Here's what I want to make sure you get. Kings and priests have different jobs. Kings administer justice. Priests administer forgiveness of sins, atonement, peace with God. Kings dealt with evildoers. Priests made atonement for sinners. And they also, by the way, cared for the poor and the sick. In the Old Testament, if you wanted to give your money to the poor, you gave it to priests, and the priest had a distribution system. When Jesus heals the leper, he tells the leper, go show yourself to the priest. Why? Because priests were like the health officers on top of it all. The king symbolizes strength and judgment, righteousness. The priest was, the, if you like, the figure of mercy and forgiveness and atonement. So you can't be both at once. You can't be both at once. How are you going to bring, be the bringer of compassion and forgiveness and the police officer? It doesn't work. The job descriptions are in conflict. This is why the promise of the Messiah here in Psalm 110 is so radical and why the gospel of Jesus Christ will change you forever when you get your mind around it and you get your heart around it. Jesus Christ the Messiah comes as forever the king of righteousness and the king of peace. He comes as the mighty ruler and the perfect priest. And he keeps those titles forever. He's never going to be replaced by a new administration that really likes the righteousness and judgment bit more than the peace and forgiveness bit. And so this is the picture of the one who we need most. The one who is both our king and our priest. And then the final point of the sermon, we are given a picture of victory. The psalm closes with this picture of victory, if you look at verse five, the Lord is at your right hand, he will shatter kings. So the Adonai, we're not talking to Yahweh now, the Adonai is at your right hand, he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath, execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses, he will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. The king comes to bring life, comes to bring righteousness, comes to bring peace. But verse one was the promise, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, until I put your enemies under your feet. The, those words were spoken to the risen and ascended Jesus Christ when he entered the heavenly throne room to the angelic festal shouts of victory. Now some people believe that the promise of verse one is entirely future-oriented. That is, they believe God is not really in the business right now of putting Jesus' enemies under his feet. Enemies will kind of run the world right now, but on the last day, the second coming, all of the putting under his feet is going to happen at once. I would simply offer that's not what the psalm conveys. The psalm conveys a picture of God's enemies starting a losing streak in about 33 AD. And they just keep getting owned. And they just keep getting shattered is the word that, the, that David uses. Jesus said at his resurrection that all power and all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Where did he get it from? His father, who sent forth from Zion, from Jerusalem, after the ascension, the son's mighty scepter and told him, go rule in the midst 
of your enemies. And Jesus Christ said, Amen, let it be so. What has happened since then for about 2,000 years is that the Son is executing judgment among the nations, filling them up with the corpses of his enemies. This is language of total defeat. Either they are defeated because he breaks their teeth, that's psalm language, that is, defangs them, renders them powerless, or he converts them and turns them into sons. Either way, the kings of the earth do not threaten him. In fact, if you remember Psalm 2, he's laughing at them. And verse 7, he will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. What happened in Jerusalem at Pentecost was not simply the dawning of a new day and of a new order and so on. It was that. It wasn't only that. What happened at Pentecost was the end of a war and the start of a new one. You see, Jesus is not up in heaven on the throne just waiting around bored out of his mind for the day when he will finally be king. He's already been told by the Father, take the seat of authority now. Okay? And rule until all your enemies are under your feet. The battle's not coming to an end someday. It was ended 2,000 years ago. Death was embarrassed. Satan was humiliated. If you remember, he had tried to offer Jesus all the kingdoms of the world, right? Just bow down to me, and and they're all yours. And Jesus replied with, I'm not going to receive the kingdoms from you. I'm going to take them from you. The battle's over. It's over. But not all the coastlands know it's over. Okay? Listen. This is what happens when there's war on a grand scale. War all over several regions, several places, okay? And let's say the capital city gets taken, okay? So the war is over. The, the major deciding war-ending victory is over, okay? So let's say, let's just pick a day. Let's say April 9th, the capital city falls to the new power. And for this purpose of this analogy, the capital city of, of the, the power of Satan falls to the kingdom of Christ who puts it under his feet. So the war is over. That doesn't mean that this April 9th victory, that doesn't mean all the fighting stops everywhere else by the morning of April 10th, right? They don't, they don't know yet. These, these little skirmishes are still going on. Yes, the capital city has fallen, but the, the, the battle's still happening out in the coastlands. And so the messengers of victory have to be sent out from the capital city. The messengers have to be sent out from Zion saying the war is over. Our king of righteousness who is also our king of peace has won the victory. That's what we do every Sunday when we gather. We proclaim the victory of our crucified, risen, ascended King Jesus. We don't suggest you worship him. He's not running for office. He's not waiting to be voted on. He is king. You either find yourself appearing before him freely on the day of his power, covered in the holy garments of his righteousness, or you find yourself shattered by the rod of iron that he will wield against his enemies who continue in their rebellion. And so our King Jesus is calling all the nations, every single one and every single one of you to himself, 
The call goes out from Zion. The call goes out from Zion. And he's given the mission to his people to bring every one of his children home. The war is over. Come worship the king. In the name of Jesus, amen. And so our Father, we pray indeed that you would continue to expand your kingdom, covering from, from one end of the coastlands to the other, covering indeed the whole world in the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. And we ask that you would fit our hands for the work ahead to do just that. And that you would receive all the glory. Indeed, this is what we pray when we say, let your kingdom come. And so, Lord, let it be. In Jesus' name, amen.